Happy Halloween, listeners, and welcome to episode 5 of the Brain Rules podcast. I'm your host, Anu Kumar, and today we're going to talk about fear and our fascination for all things spooky. On today's agenda, we're going to talk about how fear is processed in different cortical regions of the brain, how the same experience can be perceived differently based on an anxiety condition or someone's experience, and why we like or dislike scary movies. So first I want to discuss the pathway responsible for causing us to feel fear. So a visual fear response is the most common type of fear. It's in fact probably the most evolutionary ingrained kind of fear that we and other species have. We receive visual input from our environment, so light bounces off of these objects and enters into our eyes and creates what is called an ambiguous image on our retina. There are neurons lying the inside of our eyes called photoreceptors and their job is to capture light energy or photons and transduce it into electrical impulses that our brain can then decode. So these impulses, having already been converted from photons, are sent to the thalamus. The thalamus acts as the main distributor of information in the situation. So it sorts the incoming impulses from the photoreceptors via the optic tract and sends appropriate signals to the hypothalamus, the amygdala, the occipital lobe and the hippocampus and some other uh, cortical areas as well. So the thalamus is extremely important perceiving stimuli and it relays up to 98% of all of our sensory input as noted by News Medical's online article, What Does the Thalamus Do? So this article also notes three different types of cell groups that are involved in this in-sensory relay located in the thalamus. So these are the sensory relay nuclei, the association nuclei, and the nonspecific nuclei. So the sensory relay nuclei are responsible for primary sensations, so input from sight, sound, and touch. They pass on these inputs to specific areas in the brain. So visual inputs go to the occipital lobe in the most posterior part of the brain. Sound input will go to the anterior cortex within the temporal lobes. And touch will go to the somatosensory cortex and or the motor cortex near the central sulcus. Taste and smell are mostly associated with the olfactory bulb, which does not receive information from the thalamus. So by this definition, they're not actually considered primary sensations. The association nuclei act as a sort of bridge between major cortical areas. So they take input from different cerebral areas in the brain and project them to other larger association areas. So as an example, they might take input from the prefrontal cortex and then project them to the hippocampus or the amygdala. And these cells are mostly in charge of forming associations between brain areas in response to stimuli. So these cells are an explanation of why people can alter their behavior or movement based on past experiences. So the last cell group I want to talk about in the thalamus is the nonspecific nuclei, and they do exactly what they sound like they do. They take in information from different parts of the brain, like the association nuclei do, but they kind of diffuse these signals wherever in the brain. Um, They play a major role in regulating signals and are a part of us uh, staying alert to different environmental stimuli. And according to News Medical's article, these cells, uh, quote, play a role in general functions such as alerting. So this is taken directly from the article. So after these signals are sent to each of these cortical areas, uh, what happens next can actually vary for every individual. Uh, In someone that has high anxiety, their amygdala is probably more sensitive to stimuli than they can induce a more intense fear response. Uh, So if this anxious person comes in contact with, say, like a bear, then the amygdala will be activated more than it usually would. 
So if the individual hasn't had any experience with bears before, um, then their overactive amygdala will actually send inhibitory signals to their prefrontal cortex. And again, this can be good or bad. Since our anxious individual has not had any run-ins with bears in the past, uh, inhibitory signals to the prefrontal cortex will make it difficult to respond and think about how to get away from the bear safely. Um, in this anxious person. So they will more likely freeze in place out of just complete fear or attempt to run away. Uh, now, I'm not a resident expert on what to do in case of a bear encounter, so out of curiosity, I looked it up. Uh, turns out there are a lot of factors you've got to think about when encountering a bear. Say if it's a grizzly bear or black bear, if there are cubs around, uh, do you have bear spray on hand, um, when should you try to intimidate a bear, and so on. So if you're actually curious about what to do in case um, you encounter a bear, you can do a quick Google search online. But I found this basic summary of points on bearsmart.com. So even if our anxious individual knew all of these things about what to do in case you encounter a bear, there's a good chance he won't be able to think about all these different facets when they are gripped with fear. So after the bear encounter is over, the experience is stored in the hippocampus. So if someone heads out on a different hiking trail, uh, they'll remember the bear experience they had on their first um, hiking trail. So this experience is crucial because most of the time, it determines how well we will react to a potential threat. So let's go back to the situation of a person encountering a bear, but this time it's their second or third uh, encounter instead of the first. When they're on a hiking trail, their hippocampus pulls on the memory of the bears on the last few hiking trails that they were on. So the prefrontal cortex then prematurely works with the hippocampus to pull up bear facts and prepares an escape or fight plan if another bear comes along. So if this person sees a bear, the prefrontal cortex will actually send inhibitory signals to the amygdala so that the way the fear response is diluted in a sense. So that way they're still feeling fear. I mean, who wouldn't whenever you're seeing a bear on a hiking trail, but it's not as crippling as the first time when they see a bear. So they're actually able to better assess the situation of, should I intimidate this bear or should I slowly walk away? Should I spray it with bear spray? All that kind of stuff, um, rather than feeling helpless in that situation. So experience is everything. Similarly, a stimuli that invokes fear can have the opposite effect. So if you encounter a bear on a hiking trail, you might purposely avoid going on a hiking trail for the rest of your life. This avoidance response actually involves a different cortical area called the right anterior cingulate. So the right anterior cingulate is heavily responsible for harm avoidance, and it's typically larger in individuals that have any sort of anxiety disorder of varying intensities. That was a large info dump about how uh, fear processing can work. So now let's talk about why we like or hate uh, scary movies. So Psych Central's article, Why Some People Love Horror Movies While Others Hate Them, by Margarita Tartikonsky, describes this phenomenon very well. Uh, she cites Glenn Sparks, PhD, as describing this experience as the excitation transfer process. So the excitation transfer process states that the appeal or dislike you feel for a situation, or in this case, scary movie, is determined by how you feel after the situation passes. Sparks states that once uh, the situation is over, the physiological arousal, aka the hormones and the adrenaline pumping through our system while the movie is playing, is still present. So because of this, anything you're feeling at the time is more intense and therefore more committed to memory, because more intense emotions can actually influence how well you remember a situation. 
So different brain uh, wiring and circuitry is also a possible reason of why some of us have different opinions on scary movies. So Sparks notes that um, some people are biologically wired to better detect changes in the environment or are also hypersensitive to physical sensations. So this can be connected with the reward system in our brain. So in this scenario, let's say person A loves scary movies and person B hates them, all right? So A and B are watching a scary movie together and a suspenseful scene is currently playing on the screen. So A notices the change in the background music, the soft footsteps of the approaching killer, etc., while B is pretty stiff with anticipation and wondering what's going to happen next. So a jump scare suddenly happens, and while both A and B might be slightly startled, person A's reward system fires because they were able to detect these changes within the movie and then are satisfied because their, their predictions are correct and they were fully um, satisfied in terms of what happened and what they predicted. So while person A's reward system is firing, person B's uh, reward system is not really firing. In fact, they are staying petrified and their sympathetic nervous system is active and they have a hard time relaxing their muscles or controlling their heart rate. So even if person A's heart rate goes up and they absolutely love it, um, person B can have the heart rate go up and they feel the completely opposite. They absolutely hate it. So after the movie, person A is more likely to watch a scary movie again, while person B is more likely to avoid watching a scary movie. The same can be said for other adrenaline-inducing activities, such as skydiving or riding a roller coaster. And it's actually possible that someone who doesn't like scary movies actually loves being on a roller coaster. And this is thanks to a little thing in psychology called stimulus discrimination. So let's add a third person into this equation. So person A, person B, and person C are all on a roller coaster. A loves scary movies and roller coasters. B hates scary movies, but also loves roller coasters. And C hates scary movies and roller coasters. So person A is experiencing a similar adrenaline rush while on the roller coaster, as well as when they were uh, watching a scary movie. But this time, person B feels that same adrenaline rush whenever they're on the roller coaster, because person B is able to separate the situations of watching a scary movie and riding a roller coaster. To person B, these feel like two distinctly different events with different physiological reactions. In the roller coaster situations, um, person B's reward pathway might be more active and they're more likely to get on the roller coaster again. So to person C, who does not show stimulus discrimination, they feel the same rush of emotions and physiological responses while they watch a scary movie as they do while they're riding a roller coaster. So their heart rate will increase like person A and person B, but their experience is more out of fear rather than enjoyment. So now that we've covered the differences between loving and hating scary movies through stimulus discrimination, let's talk more about why person A might enjoy the scary movie in the first place. So in the same Psych Central article, Sparks says that the sheer novelty of a scary movie alone can capture audiences. If a unique scary movie comes out, people are more likely to have a positive experience with it because they want to figure out what's happening. So one movie that received a highly positive reception from a variety of different people with uh, different tastes in scary movies was the movie Get Out, uh, which took a social commentary twist on the typical sociopathic family that kills. Um, 
So evolutionary speaking, we're built to survive in our environment. And sometimes our environment involves being in a house with a psychopath or involves escaping a demonic clown. So in Psychology Today, um, they have an article titled, Why Do We Like Watching Scary Films? written by Mark Griffiths, PhD. And Griffiths cites a paper in the Journal of Media Psychology saying that the three reasons why we continue to watch a scary movie are number one, tension, number two, relevance, and number three, unrealism. So tension refers to any sort of mystery or suspense, and it can also apply to gore. Relevance can be anywhere from cultural relevance to personal relevance. So if it's a horror film based on a culture's religion or an urban legend um, in your hometown, or if the film's main character is a high school student and the main audience are high school students. The factor of unrealism sort of speaks for itself. Um, I first think of the Final Destination movies, and if you're not familiar with the Final Destination franchise, it is basically where um, the main cast of characters uh, avoids a situation where they would die, so not getting on a roller coaster that derails and kills everyone on the roller coaster, or not getting on a plane that crashes and kills everyone on the plane, you get the idea. And as the movie progresses, um, death kind of follows them, and uh, they start to die off in very peculiar, weird, um, very uncommon ways. Um, so that's sort of like the unrealistic factor. So for the last portion of this podcast, I want to talk about um, some fascinating trends that the journal Human Communication Research came across in its 1995 issue. So Griffith's article also talks about this trend, so if you don't want to read the actual research papers or can't find them, the quoted summary on psychology today is a great way to find this information. So this study looked at the motivation for watching scary movies and whether or not the watchers identified with the victims or the killers more. The sample group for the study was 220 American adolescents. So it's a pretty small and specific sample group. So the study noted a total of four cognitive trends. So the first one were um, individuals who liked to watch gore-heavy movies. Um, for example, in the Saw franchise. And um, the, the study noted that these people had low empathy, high sensation, were high sensation seeking, and had a strong identification with the killer, unquote. So the high sensation seeking refers to the desire or the need to have more intense stimuli in order to be interested or responsive to your environment. So sudden loud noises, complex sounds, and a vivid use of color, etc. can play into this. In the Psychology Today synopsis, they noted that only males exhibited a strong identification with the killer. Now, before I continue on to the other three trends, um, I want to possibly counter this by reminding you all that this study may have... Um, that while this study may have shown this trend of only males exhibiting the strong identification with the killer, it only surveys 220 adolescents. So my advice to you is to take this information with a grain of salt. Um, so back to the four trends. The second trend was labeled as uh, thrill watchers, and these people were highly uh, sensation-seeking, but also highly empathetic. They enjoyed the suspense of the film and identified more with the victims. So these are the people who watch for the mystery um, and the suspense of the film and would probably enjoy more psychological thrillers than just straight-up gore. So the third trend uh, was called independent watchers, and they had a high empathy for the victims but also had, quote, high positive effect for overcoming fear. So if we go back to our person A analogy, 
These people are great at observing little details in a film and totally getting into the small predictions and intricacies of the film. Their reward system is probably very active while they're, um, while they're watching uh, any sort of scary movie as well. So the fourth and final category is called the problem watchers, and this is definitely something um, I experience with most media involving horror, whether that's movies, shows, video games, whatever. Uh, so problem watchers have, quote, high empathy for the victim, but were characterized by negative effect, unquote. So Griffiths also notes that they feel this negative effect through a sense of helplessness. And this can often involve stimulus discrimination issues. So it's like the problem watchers um, have difficulty or are completely incapable of separating themselves from the victims in the story so that they are actually mirroring the character's fear and helplessness. This is potentially a byproduct of the mirror neuron system, which is used to learn something by watching someone else do it. And it can also explain how we empathize with other people's emotions. So that's all I have for you guys today. Uh, we covered a lot of material in today's podcast, so let's do a quick recap of the points. We talked about the cortical areas that are responsible for processing fear, including the three types of nuclei in the thalamus, and how an inexperienced, anxious individual versus an experienced, non-anxious individual can process a bear sighting on a hiking trail. So we also talked about our trio of friends, persons A, B, and C, uh, their love and or hate for scary movies and roller coasters, stimulus discrimination, and how they process the same scary movie or roller coaster ride in different ways. Finally, we talked about a very small study involving 220 American adolescents and the four different categories of scary movie watchers. So thank you for tuning into this podcast of Brain Rules. If you like what you heard, please share this episode with a friend. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the Daily Beacon podcast for episodes every other week. Now, we did get off schedule last week in publishing our episodes due to some recording conflicts. Uh, so this week is a bit of an anomaly. We have the special episode coming out on Halloween and another regular episode coming out this Thursday, November 2nd, about circadian rhythm. So be on the lookout for that. Um, and after that, we will continue our bi-weekly schedule as normal. So once again, I'm Anu Kumar, and I hope you learned something new today.